Let us pray together. Dear God, here we are again. We've heard your scripture. We've gathered together in community. And now we seek your Holy Spirit to guide us so that we might hear your word in scripture. And for this, we thank you especially for the help and example of your living word, Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Every Sunday here in our eight-part series, we're moving through John Paul Lederach's book and looking at reconciliation through some new biblical window. A little recap here. We started by exploring stories about reconciliation in the lives, remember, of Esau and Jacob. And then we looked at the reconciliation arts of Jesus. Last Sunday, we saw how God builds diversity and healthy conflict right into the human story from the very beginning of creation. And today, we look at the very, very challenging Psalm 137. I was shaking in my pew over there as Rebecca read that. And we're going to, looking at, we're going to be looking at what to do when conflict is burning and we cry out for help. Now, at first blush, at first glance, our psalm today may look like a very good example of how not to handle conflict, right? Doesn't it sound a lot like one of those rants that we read at the bottom of some article, an LNP or some other newspaper? I mean, isn't it a good thing if we almost never hear those last verses that we just heard in worship? Isn't that a good thing? And that some Christians don't even know exist in the Bible? Isn't that also a good thing? Well, we're going to find out this morning. My very first exposure to Psalm 137 didn't come from the Bible, but from popular culture. Back in the late 80s, a vinyl album by Don McLean was one of the first ones that I bought with the hit single, Bye Bye Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was... And good, well, we'll stop there. (laughs) Wow, it went on for an eternal eight minutes and 36 seconds. Imagine a hit song going on for almost nine minutes today. I guess we had a lot more time back in the 70s. And it was on the B side. Remember the B side? You know, you had to flip the vinyl and. And at the very end of that vinyl record, I first heard the haunting song, By the Waters of Babylon. 
And we'll sing that as our hymn of response a little bit later here. Now here's the funny thing. Back then, I thought this was a song about parents missing their children. How did I get that? Well, this is one of these funny things we do when we're young. I thought McLean was, was not singing, We Remember Thee, Zion, but singing, We Remember These Are Young. And many, many years later, when I discovered that all of this came from the Bible, I discovered that this was about Zion. And also, I got a little help from the reggae version of the song by Bob Marley, right? By the waters of Babylon. All right, so let's... Take a look now at this psalm, and I invite you to uh, turn to it in the bulletin insert in your bulletin if you find that helpful. Now, Psalm 137 is a fascinating one because it's actually one of the very few psalms that we can date with a fair bit of accuracy. This is because it describes an actual event in history for the Jewish people. You see, in the 6th century before Jesus, 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonian Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, laid siege to Jerusalem three different devastating times. And the accounts of this are horrific. Famine broke out. There were reports of cannibalism inside the city walls. And then after the walls were breached, the Jewish king Zedekiah was forced to watch the slaughter of his own children. And then after that, to have his eyes gouged out. The temple, the temple was destroyed, its treasures plundered, and the Ark of the Covenant disappeared from history forever. Well, one of you actually corrected me and said it's in Ethiopia now, by tradition. Thousands from Jerusalem were forced to make the 500-mile march to their captivity in faraway Babylon, and only the poor and the weak were left behind. So in verses 1 and 2, if you look at them now, we join these traumatized people. These are the folks we're talking about. As they sit beside the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem. On the willows, there we hung our harps. In verse 1, these exiles are experiencing the profound, profound grief of being displaced from their homeland in Jerusalem. In verse 2, 
their musical instruments, which they had long used to praise God, are now hanging up unused on trees nearby. What an evocative image. In verse 3, our plot thickens. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And you can imagine that being said drunkenly, right? Entertain and amuse us with your sacred songs. The Babylonian captors cry out, You see, this is the way the empire robs their Jewish captives of their identity, their dignity, and their hope. Many centuries later, this scene will be repeated in the Nazi death camp of Treblinka when Jews are forced to sing for the amusement of their German guards. Imagine if they were Mennonites, the Nazis yelling out, Hey, sing us 606 again! Right? Amuse us with your holy songs. In verse 4, There's a lot in this psalm. In verse 4, the psalmist now moves to the central question haunting these folks in exile. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You see, these exiles, these captives, are not only experiencing just physical dislocation, they are also experiencing spiritual crisis. They've just witnessed the traumatic destruction of their beloved temple, and they're wrestling with a host of deep, deep questions. Is this exile God's judgment? upon their century after century of injustice and idolatry? Is that what this is? And another question, are the gods of Babylon stronger than Yahweh? Sure seems like it. And another question, if the temple was the house of the Lord and is now in rubble, where on earth... Where on earth is God? In verse 5, the focus suddenly turns to not forgetting. The empire, you you see, has already claimed their bodies. Their bodies are captive. So how will these exiles prevent the empire from claiming their souls as well? Through the fierce resistance of remembering. Of not forgetting. 
If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Walter Brueggemann's commentary here is especially insightful. He reminds us that there are many kinds of Zionism. And not just the kind we connect today with Israeli settlers, with brutal occupation, and with military might. The focus on Zion here, this is very important, is not on religion that mirrors the violence of the empire. But on religion that preserves a contrast community identity. For these exiles, remembering Zion symbolizes their absolute refusal to let all of life be controlled by and centered in the empire. Remembering Zion here is tenaciously remembering God. The God who created them and the God to whom they still belong in Babylon. In the same way, all of us here gather together here every Sunday to remember God's story of reconciliation in Jesus Christ and our part in it. Remembering, not forgetting, is a psychological and theological necessity that helps us stay morally alive. But then in verse 7, this remembering also brings back haunting images of trauma. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, 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 down to its foundations. So who are these Edomites, by the way? None other than the descendants of Esau. Wow. Remember three weeks ago? How the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau was so partial, so tentative, wasn't it? And many centuries later, unresolved hatred still festers between their descendants. 
we see the urgency of reconciliation work, right? Otherwise, we're going to pass this on generation after generation after generation. And when the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, their new allies, the Edomites, are there to cheer them on singing, we will, we will rock you. This century equivalent. And later in far away Babylon, their taunts still echo in the memory of these, echo, of these exiles. And so the psalmist now matches them with cries of revenge for his own people. Remember against them, O Lord. And then our last two verses again address the empire of Babylon. So you can see this beautiful symmetry in this psalm. It begins with Babylon. It ends with Babylon. Taunts, taunts, and then you have the core of the psalm. And it ends with these words, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Make our day, Yahweh. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. A little one for a little one. Wipe out their future generations, Yahweh, just as they've wiped out ours. Payback time. And it's done. These last verses, along with other toxic passages in the Bible, are so troubling to us that we almost never, never read them in church. Have you ever heard verse 9 read in church? Some call, this is very interesting, some call this removal of difficult passages psalmectomies. (laughs) Or, I'm going to have to say this carefully, textectomies. And I'm so guilty of psalmectomies and textectomies. Now, Eric Siebert, Old Testament prof over at Messiah College, is especially critical of this practice. He says that it leads to congregations with weak hermeneutical muscles. Are you with me? Weak interpretive muscles, never developed. He says it deprives us when we do this, when we don't wrestle with these texts, of the crucial training in Christ-centered discernment about what is of God and what is absolutely not. 
and hearing only the good passages, which I love to share with you folks, unfortunately makes it easy for us to say foolish stuff. Like, if the Bible says it, it must be true. You can only say that if you've never engaged these texts. Because it's just not that easy. Worst of all, pretending these difficult texts don't exist is dangerous. Because you know what's going to happen? Someone will invariably revive them and misuse them in a time of conflict. And then everybody else, all the other believers are surprised and don't know what to do or how to grapple with that text because they have weak interpretive muscles. When I was in seminary, John Bell, he's the Scot, a joy to listen to him, who's written many hymns in our green and purple hymnals. He came and spoke to us at AMBS about Psalm 137. And he said that we need to keep hearing all of this psalm, including verses 7, 8, and 9, for another reason. It teaches us to bring our rage to God. Instead of resorting to violence. In our homes and on the playgrounds, don't we often tell our kids, use your words, not your fists? In the same way, the psalmist uses his words here with God. He entrusts his vengeance and his need for justice to God. And when we do that, when we entrust justice and vengeance to God, the endless cycles of violence in our world can finally begin to end. And when we have been deeply hurt or wronged, I wonder if giving each other here at East Chestnut the safe space to use our words is a crucial way that we can be God's priests to one another. A crucial way that we can be the priesthood of all believers to one another. God wants us to bring all that we are to God, even our ugly rage, and it's often a trusted spouse or friend or spiritual director or pastor with them that we can let these feelings come and then let them go to God.
In fact, this purging of our inner violence, Walter Wink talks about this a lot, this purging, this relinquishment of our inner violence that we all have may be the most important step in our long journey toward reconciliation. You know, after the Jewish exiles take this step of confessing their rage in Babylon to God, don't we see God amazingly transforming them now in astounding ways? Helping them to move from praying for the massacre of their captors' children to what? To our verse of the year, to praying for the shalom of Babylon, the city, their new home. Helping them to see God's image, even in the face of their Babylonian enemies. Helping them to discover that it really is possible to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. In the silence now, I invite you to turn to the experiments in your bulletin. And let us invite the Holy Spirit to help us choose precisely the one that we need this week. Amen.